0: I want to get started this morning by doing something just a little bit different. I wanted to share uh, with you something uh, that's become kind of a bigger part of my life uh, in the last uh, couple of years. Four years ago, um, my wife uh, bought me a shotgun, right? Wins wife of the year award for that one. She bought me a shotgun. Uh, I've got into shooting sporting clays a little bit uh, with my in-laws, and uh, as I've gotten more and more into it, uh, it's just become something that I've spent a little bit of time doing. Uh, I've really only gotten into doing shooting the actual clay targets, and I have a Browning Satori uh, CX shotgun. And I've gone different places to shoot uh, different events, shot skis, shot traps, shot uh, sporting clays. Uh, and I have a Browning. It's an over under shotgun, meaning there's two barrels stacked on top of one another. And the CX model of this gun is really kind of a very versatile gun. Um, it, it's set up in such a way that it's good for the different disciplines because each discipline of shotgunning um, kind of has particular things. Uh, that you need to be able to do. Mine, in particular, is set up so that as I aim the gun, as as the bird is flying through the air, 60% of the shot shell um, goes above my aim point and 40% below. Now, this is because most of the time when you're shooting these flying discs out of the air, they're on an upward trajectory. So even if I'm aiming a little bit low, the shot shell goes a little bit above. And so it's got a different latching system and kind of a different forearm, and it's really set up for me in particular. Uh, the stock, uh, the, the stock, and the gun has what's called an adjustable comb, and this is a part of the stock that, as I rest my cheek up against it, I'm able to adjust the stock, the comb, uh, to the right or to the left, <laughs> to the right or to the left. So that my so that my eye is aligned directly over the rib, and I have a mid-rib in contrast to like a high rib, which is really just a show-off, or a flat rib, um, which is uh, kind of old school. I've got a mid-rib, so I'm able to adjust the comb to align uh, my right eye dominance, which is just slightly to the inside, uh, right where I want to look. Uh, additionally, it has an adjustable butt plate so that as I, as I mount the shotgun often, uh, if you don't have this plate on the rear of it, your gun can cant a little bit so that as you're moving, um, you can kind of be a little bit behind. So I have this adjustable shot plate. But, uh, but all this stuff is kind of the, the specifics, the technical side of the gun. With what's really great about it, and I've actually shot with a number of people here. I've taken Caleb shooting, uh, Ken and even Randy. We've gone shooting together. There is something incredible when you get the gun together and you load the ammo, and you snap it closed. If you're not familiar with it, it kind of breaks into two parts, and when you load the ammo in the top, you close it, and there's this unbelievable vibration in your hands from the wood and the metal, the way it clasps together, and just like when it it comes together and you feel that in your hands, the weight of it is is balanced in between your two hands. It kind of gives you that feeling, that excitement, like you're ready to go. And then hopefully, you know, you, you shoot the target and you, you uh, blow it to smithereens. One of the things that actually I've kind of gotten into, or I, I now choose my ammo specifically this way, certain ammo has like a really pleasing smell. And so, so after you shoot the gun and, and you open it back up to eject the shells and the shells come flying out of there, you eject them and you kind of get that aroma of some of the more high-quality ammo. And so I wanted to share that with you a little bit this morning. And, and for those of you who are nervous, who maybe think of you know, guns as like bad things or evil things, I want to be clear, I don't have any uh, shells on my person. There are no shells in the box. I don't think there's even any shot shells um, in the building. Additionally, I want to be clear that before bringing in something like this, I did clear it um, with Caleb, and he said no. Uh, so, uh, but it would have been really exciting, right? I mean, how good would that whole thing have been if I had bring, been able to bring out the gun? So, if you're as disappointed as I am, you can blame Caleb. But, but I say all that not just for the shock value, although there's some of that. I think there's a different way that we talk about our passions. I think there's a different level of emotion that comes out when you're really talking about something that matters to you. That, that's something that really resonates with you personally. And as I was getting ready to talk this morning about Hebrews 7, it really kind of struck me as I was approaching the verses that I think the author has a great deal of passion for this subject. So I'd like to read for you uh, the verses. Now, I'm not going to be able to cover all of them. It's a rather lengthy passage. Uh, but I'd like to read to you the verses. So listen along with me. <clears throat> this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met with Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Skip down to verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, That is Jesus. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus had become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus lives forever. He is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into these verses. I pray that we would, we would understand their meaning and their context, the knowledge that they give. I pray that we would see the connection here between Melchizedek and Jesus. I pray that we would have right understanding how these verses can inform our lives and our relationships, and finally, that we would be transformed by the knowledge therein. I ask that you would quiet my voice, that we might hear yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, as we get into this this morning, I do want to give credit where credit is due. As I was preparing for my message, I listened to sermons by both D.A. Carson and John Piper. So if you're in the audience this morning and I say anything that's particularly salient or insightful, I assure you I've stolen that idea from someone much smarter. Now, I also want to acknowledge the fact that, hey, we've got two services combined here. I understand that you first-service people are already running behind schedule, um, so I'm sorry about that. You second-service people are probably still waiting for the caffeine to kick in. So I'm going to make a lot of movements up here. I'm going to try and get your attention so that we can all uh, keep moving through things. So we're going to start. I want to uh, take a look at a four questions as we approach these verses. Who is Melchizedek? How are he and Jesus connected? What can we do with Hebrew 7? And how does it shape us? So let's get right into it as we uh, look at Uh, Melchizedek. Now, the interesting thing about Melchizedek is that when we think of Old Testament characters, we often think about that there's entire books written about them, right? We we think about Joshua or David or Samuel or Saul, these characters who have long stories, that there's great accounts of the things that they did and the things that they said during their lifetime. And as I was approaching this, I have to confess, I wasn't particularly familiar with Melchizedek. And it's because, honestly, there's not a lot of information about him. There's this one passage in Genesis that actually gives direct reference to the things that he did and said. And we're going to look into those verses back in Genesis. But I want to give a little bit of context to it. Um, In the verses in Genesis 14, uh, Abraham has found out that his nephew Lot has been captured. And Abraham organizes a group of the kind of other of his surrounding neighbors. And they go out and they retrieve Lot and his whole household. And he brings them back. And as he returns from this triumphal entry... Oh, we see these three verses that talk about Melchizedek. So let's look at them up there. Genesis fourteen eighteen through 20, just these three verses. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered you into your enemy's hand. Now, this isn't the only verse that informs our knowledge about Melchizedek. There's another passage from Psalm 110. So, this verse in Genesis was written in about 1450 BC. 500 years later, King David writes a psalm about Melchizedek and writes a song about Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. Now, as those verses begin, as Psalm 110 begins, David begins talking about with this kind of unusual phrase. He begins Psalm 110 by saying, The Lord said of my Lord. You know, there's different translations, but the way that it comes across is basically the Lord says of my Lord. Now, this is, at first glance, kind of hard to understand, these two lords. Well, the the first Lord, and remember, this is David prophesying. This is a word given to him by the Lord, by by what we think of as the Heavenly Father. So, So the word is coming down from heaven, but then David is referring to His Lord, that is the coming Messiah, who we now know he's referring to as Jesus Christ. So as he's describing Jesus' coming back in 1000 BC, 500 years after Melchizedek was on earth, he starts talking about the coming Messiah in a particular way. He starts talking about him in very kingly terms. He talks about him sitting at the right hand of God. And we can kind of envision a throne room here where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God that he's arrayed in holy majesty, this, this very royal terminology for him. And even more than that, kind of in the conquering sense of a king, that his enemies are made a footstool at his feet. And as he talks about all of these ways of the coming Messiah being great in power and, and having a tremendous place in authority, then he t- gets on to verse 4 in Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord has sworn, and you will not change his mind. You are priests forever. In the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is an interesting phrase. This order of Melchizedek, and the importance here is that if we need to, if we want to understand what this means, what the order of Melchizedek actually is, we need to know what its alternative is. Its alternative being the Levitical order, the order that was established by the Mosaic Law. So, when we think about the Old Testament Law and what it meant to be a Levite priest. What it meant in that time, what that stood for, was that it, was, it kind of starts with the genealogy, right? The Mosaic law established that all of those that were in the line of Levi's, their life was going to be oriented around the priesthood, that they had to follow these particular laws, that they were tasked with the sacrifices, with the feasts, and doing all of this work, their whole life was going to be oriented around service in this capacity. And it was kind of based on this genealogical heritage like that's there was just there wasn't no way to get into it, there was no way to get out of it. It was really wrapped up in this particular way so that if we know that the Levitical priesthood was kind of oriented towards this one particular um this one particular order then we then we can move on and look at what did it really mean to be of the and hang on for this one folks Melchizedekiel order you like that and I had to run that one through a few times. So if we're looking at the Melchizedekial order, we want to see what are, what's the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek? How are the two connected? How, how do we find them to be similar? And there's really two main ways that these two characters, these two people in the Bible are connected, and it's by the way that they occupy these dual roles of both priest and king. When we think of Jesus Christ's ministry when he was here on earth, the accounts from the Gospels, we can kind of clearly see that they were oriented around these kind of priestly activities, right? He, he was talking about the forgiveness of sins. He was ministering to people on a one-on-one basis. And, and all of his life was oriented and moved towards the culmination of his death on the cross, the sacrifice that was required by God in his holy perfection. Jesus gave himself up as the once and final high priest. For all of our sins. So we can see that in back in Genesis, when Melchizedek is described as the priest of God most high, we can see that Jesus is like him in this same way. Now Melchizedek, his title is given to us as the priest of the God most high, but is also the king of Salem. Well David told us that the coming Messiah was going to be a king as well, as he described him in those royal terms from Psalm one hundred ten. Even further on as we consider the rest of the Bible, we know that as he's described in Revelation that he's coming back as a conquering king. He's described in these war-type these war terms where he's going to be riding in on a white horse that his enemies will be bowing before him and that every knee will bow. This is language about a king. And what's unique about this, is, as we consider the implications of this, is in the Old Testament, this idea, when David was writing that there was going to be a coming Messiah that would both be a king and a priest, this was, this was almost an impossibility back when these things were being written. Because in the old order, the priests had, they were so wrapped up in the, in the priestly duties, there was no opportunity for them to consider the advancement of a kingdom. And the king, the the king before David, Saul, if you can remember the story, he was condemned for the time when going into battle and he kind of flirted with acting as a priest. And he was cursed that his line would not continue on to be the king over Israel because he had gotten too close to that office. So in the Old Testament, there would have been this clear kind of implied understanding that these two roles could not be occupied by the same person. But yet David tells us that the coming Messiah will be both priest and king. There's other key distinctions here that it says in the verses that he will be without beginning and without end. And this is to refer that Melchizedek, in those verses that we read, just those three verses, for as significant of a character as Melchizedek was, he kind of comes out into the scene out of nowhere. As we think about the the patriarchs, they're they're all from a particular lineage. And as they get introduced into each biblical account, they get introduced in this way where he's the son of this person, the son of this person, the son of this person. They're kind of given in this way that their authority and their position is established by whom they're related to. And we can recognize that Jesus doesn't have the same kind of lineage because his lineage comes from above. He is the son of God. He's not the son of Joseph. It's clear. When they give the genealogy in the gospel accounts, it's not Joseph who is his father. His father is is, uh, God in heaven. The lineage that comes from the tribe of Judah is actually traced through Mary. So the fulfillment of the prophecy um, that talks about Jesus being from the tribe of Judah is actually talking about the lineage through Mary. There's also no end to his kingdom. No other Old Testament accounts are traced back their lineage up to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is not is not being uh, accredited as, as having any descendants. In the same way that Jesus doesn't have any descendants as well. He went. He was died and killed and rose again. And as he did this, he proved that he had the kingly and royal authority to overcome death that he might be able to ensure his power and place and position in heaven at the right hand of God with no need for a successor. His power and authority to ensure his own future is that same power and authority that it has to ensure ours. Let's keep on moving as we look into verse 22 through 24. There's an interesting thing that uh, gets put out here, and it says, because of this oath, these verses that we've already read, Jesus has become a guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of the priests since death prevented from continuing in office, but he has become a permanent priesthood. And I want to really key in on this phrase, a permanent priesthood. And this is from Hebrews 7, verse 24. It says, he has become a a permanent priesthood. Now, what does that imply if this priesthood, if Jesus' priesthood is permanent? Well, it implies that the former one was temporary. It implies that the Levitical priesthood, that the laws of the Old Testament were never meant to be permanent from the very beginning. That 1,500 years ago in the book of Genesis, that 1,000 years ago in the book of Psalms and up through the day that we live in, the Old Testament laws were never meant to be binding on us after Jesus came into this world and forgave our sins. Now, this is an important concept for us to remember, that the priesthood has changed, and it says also in verse 12 that when the priesthood changed, the law must be changed as well. The law must be changed as well. And this is a key concept, that as I look into these verses, I think that there's something that we as Christians need to arm ourselves in order to explain the Bible to those who may be less familiar. We need to be able to explain the Bible as a continual text. We need to be able to explain the Bible that it's not a formulaic approach for how to earn our own righteousness. It's not a rule book or a set of guides that we can uh, pick and choose from that we ought to apply to ourselves or to others in a judgmental way. No, it's a continual story. Because I think that there is this common approach to Christianity. And I'm sure many of you have heard it before. There's this repraise among the secular environment we live in that Christians are hypocrites. That that we're out here trying to apply laws to other people that we ourselves don't want to follow. And a common example of this is that there's this idea that how can we believe and how can we stand up and say that the Bible is God's inerrant law? How can we be so bold as to say that the Bible is 100% true, that God wrote every single word of it and that we ought to follow it? How can we say that? and seemingly ignore the entire Old Testament. All all these laws and regulations that were once so important that the people of Israel were judged by, how come they don't apply to us? How come we don't have to follow them? I think often this this type of argument is made against Christians. It's important that we ought to be able to have a response. I'd like to show you an example um, from a clip that I found that I think illustrates
1: this well. You know, with so many people participating in the political and social debate through call-in shows, it's a good idea to be reminded every once in a while. It's a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact. The awesome impact. I'm sorry. uh, You're Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussions. But obviously also how it can, how it can. Forgive me, Dr. Jacobs. uh, Are you an M.D.? A Ph.D. A Ph.D.? Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a Ph.D. in English literature. I'm asking because on your show people call in for advice and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show. And I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology or health
0: I don't believe they are confused. No, sir.
1: Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination.
0: I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible
1: does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another my chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight-ass club, in this building when the president stands, nobody sits.
0: powerful stuff, right? The West Wing, it's one of my favorite shows. I do apologize for the salty language in there. Uh, But but I I think that it is an illustration because this is something that can happen to us as Christians, Uh, that someone can come along and kind of make this general uninformed argument. They, They can say, if you're unwilling to follow the Old Testament laws, if you're not willing to play by your own rules, I don't want to hear anything you have to say. And they think that they've got you. They can pull out a couple of scriptures, they can have a cursory knowledge of some of the Old Testament laws, and they can say, until you have an answer, I just don't want to hear it. What authority do you have if you're not willing to be bound by your own laws? I think that it's important that we recognize this um, as a common approach, as a criticism of Christianity. And we have a thoughtful answer, we have a thoughtful response to it. I think that it begins with an attitude because to be honest, the misuse of scripture that 's not a monopoly that non Christians have. often Christians do it the same way we i 'm sure you know of examples where Christians have used the scriptures as a weapon, used it to shame other people or use it to make them feel bad this ought not to be our practice. If if you find yourself in a situation where someone is attacking the word of God like this, come to the conversation with an understanding that their feelings may be warranted. We need to start a conversation with humility. I would do so by perhaps acknowledging that people have been hurtful, Christians have been hurtful in their use or misuse of the gospel acknowledge that it can seem that way sometimes and that you want to build a bridge to a greater level of understanding because this kind of cursory knowledge this is not the true gospel the old testament is not the covenant that we live under and what we want to do is show people jesus and the new covenant but it's important that we don't ignore over half the bible and and the way that we describe this is that jesus the law was given to show our sin and god's perfection now we can see through the passages that we've already looked at. This was never meant to be the permanent way that the, that the law worked. This was never meant to be the permanent law. But it still was important. The Old Testament laws showed us our sin. It kind of gave us the opportunity. God gave us the opportunity to try to do it on our own to be able to show that we would never be able to do it. Not with the right priest, not with the right king, not with the fullest set of laws ever imaginable. No, these laws were meant to show us that we couldn't do it on our own. But they also point to God's perfection because His holiness cannot be changed. He lives in unapproachable light and He cannot accept anything less. And so the law showed us, the Old Testament law shows that there was only one way, it was through perfection, that we would never be able to meet that perfect standard. But someone did. Jesus did. In this kind of conversation we need to point Jesus we need to point to Jesus that he came to fulfill the law and he did. He came to fulfill the law and that's what exactly what he did. He was born under all the prophecies. He fulfilled each and every law. He was born without sin as the direct son of God. He didn't inherit the original sin and he lived a life of perfection. And after having lived that life and come to the fullness of time, he freely offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins, to to quench the wrath of God on our behalf. The Old Testament law pointed to the fact that another way was needed, and that way was Jesus Christ. Now, as I was looking into this uh, topic, and I was kind of considering, um, how would we explain uh, this kind of Old Testament and New Testament contrast that so often can trip people up. And, and I have to say that I, before this message, may not even had a complete understanding myself. But as I was doing the research, I came to this uh, theory or this kind of way of approaching it that I wanted to share with you, and I think that it's helpful. Now, this is interpretation. This isn't directly out of the Scripture. But I do think that it's helpful for us as a way that we can approach and look at the Scripture. It's to view the Bible as a theodrama. I'd never even heard that word before, but an approach, this is an approach that likens the biblical narratives to dramas. And I'd like to share a passage with you this morning uh, from where I read about this, and it's from a website called rootedministry.com, and there's an article written by Mark Howard, and it's entitled, Why We Don't Follow All the Old Testament Laws. I'd like to read the passage. And once we begin seeing scripture scripture as a theodrama, the answer to the question at hand becomes rather straightforward. Why don't we follow the Old Testament laws? Because we're no longer living within that part of the story. Just as it is perfectly acceptable within the Harry Potter plot line for Ron to kiss Lavender Brown in book six, by the time you get to the end of book seven in the series, he'd only better be kissing Hermione Granger, apparently. I never read the books. But hang on for you Star Wars fans. It's pretty exciting when Leia kissed Luke in A New Hope, but by the return of the Jedi after the narrative has been revealed that they are brother and sister, (laughs) Leia had only better be kissing Han Solo. In both cases, an action is totally appropriate in one part of the story and is totally inappropriate in a later part because the story has moved on and the circumstances have changed. We need to help our students understand that the law was given within a particular context to move the plot line of the theodrama forward, toward Jesus, towards our timeline, towards a new creation. If the story has moved on, then what use are the Old Testament laws to us today? Just because they're in a different part of the story does not mean that we should ignore the Old Testament law to shape Israel for the laws that were given then We're given by the same God that we find revealed in Jesus who wants to shape us. And because it is the same God and the same story, there is a lot of wisdom that can be gained from the law and how to faithfully play our part in the theodrama. But to see this, it's helpful to look at the laws within their original context, to see how they functioned and what they would have meant for Israel and their part of the story. That's a different approach something that I'd never quite articulated, heard articulated in that same way. But when we consider that the Old Testament laws served the purpose of showing people their sin, showed the people how to live a life that was separated from those around them, showed them how that they ought to serve God, how they ought to serve their neighbors, how, how they ought to serve their families, when we view it in that particular way, that it was a way that they might show the nation in their time, in their context, we can we can start to see that while they may not be as perfectly applicable to us in our day, the principles behind them are very much so. We're called to a different priesthood, to a different law, the law and the covenant of the New Testament. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel that we follow, and it's a gospel of acceptance, of love, of relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if we've come this far in Hebrews 7, and once we understand that we're part of a larger story, and we consider that Jesus' nature and character and roles and the implications that they can have on us in our daily lives, we need to move on to the point of the entire chapter that we find in verse 25. It reads, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. This verse completely summarizes Hebrews chapter 7 and gives us the point of this whole chapter. And this is a powerful thing to understand. We've talked much about the throne room of God and and what its implications are of Jesus being there and what he does in that place. And this is a description that we ought to to give full consideration to because it's it's a... it's a scene that's described in multiple times in the Bible. When, we, when this scene, the scene of God being on the throne and Jesus being at his right hand. And there's also someone else there. The devil is there. In Luke 22, before Jesus tells Peter that he will deny, Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows, Jesus says that in the throne room of heaven, the, de- the devil slinks in. And he makes a request of God. He requests that he be able to sift Peter like wheat. He requests that he might be able to sift Peter like wheat. And in his constant vigil, Jesus stands up and stands in and says, Peter, I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Intercession is a powerful thing. And as I was thinking about it in my own life, I don't have a particularly dramatic story of it, but there was one story that came to mind for me where I experienced somewhat of the power of intercession. I was six years old, and I was riding the bus to school. And uh, I was in kindergarten, I was sitting up towards the front, and uh, me and my best friend, Chris, uh, were riding together. And uh, I was, uh, in 1990, I was uh, a fan of basketball, and thus I was a fan of Michael Jordan, and thus I was a fan of the Chicago Bulls. And so I had one hat, and it was the Chicago Bulls hat, black all around with a big red Chicago Bull on the front of it. And I just thought this was awesome. I only needed one hat, only wanted one hat. That thing was disgusting. But I loved it, and I was super proud of it. But one day, while riding the bus, you know, we had a mixed bus where there was older kids and younger kids, and I was, I was at the very bottom of that group. And an older kid uh, started to pick on me about this hat. I don't even know why. Probably because he was older. Maybe because I had big ears. I don't know. But he was picking on me about this hat. I think he you know, flipped it off, and he uh, started coming at me a little bit. And I am not one to look for a fight. So I was just hoping that this thing would get over, and I was hoping that I could take my hat off that school bus. And this, this older kid was giving me a hard time. My best friend, Chris, uh, steps in. He says, that's the best hat in the world. <laughs> it's a goofy thing. But he stepped into a circumstance that he didn't need to. Showed the relationship that we had. That's what Christ does for each one of us. Steps in our place. Steps in between us and the devil. And says he's prayed for you. He's interceding for you. Now it's not just the devil that we need to be saved from, though, is it? Each one of us on a daily basis is barreling headlong at the speed of light to the gates of hell. The sin that we pursue on a daily basis rightly sends us to those gates. And each each moment, each day, Jesus is standing in between the God of eternal perfection. And he says, look upon my righteousness, my perfection. Look now on this sin. God dwells in unapproachable and holy light. And it is for our safety that, God inter- that Jesus intercedes for us. As we see in these verses, he lives always to intercede, not just for them, but for you. So if you believe this, I don't have the answers to these questions, but they're worth considering. If you believe that Jesus is up in heaven and he's interceding on our behalf, what loyalty does that build? What thankfulness does it produce? What overwhelming feeling of unworthiness does it well up from deep within our souls? There is no other response but to fall upon our knees and, with sobriety in our hearts. Ask Jesus above, how can I serve you? The writer of Hebrews is none other than God himself. And he wants us to live under the weight of this reality. He wants to use it to change our relationships, to transform our hearts. And when we rightly understand who Jesus is, the roles he occupies, what he did for us on the cross, and what he lives to do for us each day, then God's grace works in our lives to draw us closer to him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunity to come together to look into your word. Thank you for this time and this place where we can gather in your name without fear. I pray that as we leave this place, that we would consider the reality of your intercession for us. That we know that we are sinners. That there is nothing that we could do to earn our salvation, but that you offer it to us as a free gift. I pray that our hearts would be changed. I pray that we would respond to the relationships in our lives in view of this reality. pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.